For your mercy never fails me All my days I've been held in your hands From the moment that I wake up Until I lay my head Oh, I will sing Of the goodness of God All my life you have been faithful All my life you have been so, so good With every breath that I am able Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God I love your voice You have led me through the fire In darkest night You are close like no other I've known you as a father I've known you as a friend And I have lived in the goodness of God So Running after me, your goodness is. 
It's so good to be here on a Sunday morning and worship together. It's just different than doing it from home, and I just love coming. I hate missing church. Um, we uh, want to welcome you today. We have a, a scripture on page in the church Bible. It's on page uh, 641. And uh, while you're getting that out, I'm going to go over some announcements. We have several people um, traveling this weekend. So Bill and Kathy are helping um, with, the, with Bill's mother as house. And uh, so they're out of town this weekend. And uh, Deborah and Roger are doing some ministry in Colorado. So they are out of town. Um, <clears throat> Nelson Sr. is still in ICU. So we're praying for what the Lord has for him there, um, praying that he can be healed um, in one way or another. And we pray for Raul and Nina, who are very sick. So um, it's the season of sickness, and we just pray against what the enemy is doing and for what God is doing. And April and her several of her kids are super sick with COVID. So we're going to keep them in our prayers. Um, and Daniel and Amanda in August didn't get to come home yet, so they are, they're hoping soon. So we just pray that the perfect timing that the Lord happens there that for August to come home. Um, and then Allie, my niece, um, is still in rehab. She's supposed to be coming home Thursday, and... There's family busily getting the house ready for whatever her condition might be when she comes home. She's dealing with um, stage four cancer and, and she's still getting mobility recovering on her left side from a, a brain bleed and brain tumor. So <clears throat> we're praying for what God has for her and the, that family there too. Um, Psalm 36, starting in verse seven, through nine. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Thank you, Father. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we do have in mind those who are sick, those who are traveling. Father, may your perfect will come to pass, and may we be in alignment with you, Father, and to trust you and to give you our, our sickness, our pains, our worries. Father, we pray for um, little August when it's your time for him to come home, Father. We trust in you. Give, uh, give the, that family your reassurance and your, your relationship, Father, which is the utmost importance, Father, is our relationship with you. Troubles come and trials come, Father, but if we keep our relationship with you, we can be at peace and wholeness. Father, we pray for um, this town, this country, this world. Father, that your plan 
is played out and comes to pass, Father, and for those to be saved who are willing to come to you, Father, and may you use us as your light and your beacon to those who need to hear the good news. Father, we pray for this morning for the the lessons in the children's room and in the and this church body, Father, that you would use it inside of us, Father, that we would absorb it, that we would understand and and use it, Father, to apply it to those around us, to ourselves. <clears throat> we thank you, Father, for your good and perfect will. We thank you for Jesus, for your plan of salvation, for your, your perfect word. We pray all these things, Father, in Jesus' holy name. Amen.
You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope and you restore every heart that is broken. Sing it to him. Great are you, Lord, because it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise, we pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken.
morning, my friends. It is wonderful to be with y'all today. We are going to be studying in Romans chapter 13 today. So if you're in the church's Bible, on page 1306, Romans chapter 13. A few years ago, Abigail and I were headed to church here to celebrate Passover, and I was pulled over for speeding. Um, Abigail was not exactly relaxed as the lights flashed and as the sirens made an uncomfortable sound and noise, and I think this was the first time that I'd been pulled over in Abigail's lifetime, and um, so she asked if I was going to jail. Um, a real concern for a child that the cops are coming after us. Um, I told her everything would be okay, but that I needed her to be silent and quiet and still while I talked to the police officer. I was driving down Maple, not far from here, uh, passing the Wiley softball fields and Kirby Lake, and uh, I don't know how, how fast I was going precisely. I think the speed limit was a 40, and I was probably going about 45, so about five miles over. And I remember thinking, as this is happening, as the lights are flashing and the sirens are, are going, and we're waiting on the police officer, that this would be an example to Abigail. And it has been, because uh, she reminds me of this story with some frequency. We drive down Maple at least once a day, several times a week, and um, drove to church today. And so not always, but sometimes Abigail will say, Dad, do you remember this is where you were pulled over by that police officer on the way to Passover? I thought how interesting when it happened that it was happening on Passover. A night when we remember God's mercy, how he spared the firstborn of Hebrew children and delivered the Hebrews from the yoke of slavery. I really don't remember the exchange between the police officer and myself. I didn't mention going to church as an excuse for speeding. I wasn't going to manipulate an officer of the law and especially not, not use the Lord's worship in vain as a reason to give an exception for my breaking the law. And not only that, but also because my sweet, precious six- or seven-year-old daughter is in the back seat watching and learning physically and spiritually. Now, truly, I'm not a speeder. In fact, um, Rebecca frequently calls me Grandpa when I drive because I'm not a speeder. It's not really what I want to be doing. Um, that is that I don't intentionally speed. However, um, sometimes I do accidentally go over the speed limit when it's 35 or 45 and it's a slow area and maybe I'm not looking diligently and I'm not controlling my right foot, I may go over the speed limit a little bit. This time though, this time I was speeding. And although I don't remember looking at the, the um, speedometer and thinking I'm gonna speed or even setting the cruise intentionally five miles over the speed limit, 
I was speeding, and therefore I knew that if the police officer chose to give me a ticket, that it was well-deserved. What do you think about this situation? Do you think the cop was right to pull me over for going five miles over the speed limit? Or is that at just the right threshold where it's the acceptable allowance, right? Just a few miles over. Was the cop at the end of the month and trying to meet a quota and pulling over everyone they could that was violating so that they could meet their quota? Or was the cop just trying to be tough, prove that he was in charge of the situation and had the right to pull me and anyone over whether they had the radar gun out or not. The police are built into communities around our country and they're meant to serve four primary purposes. First, they're to enforce the law, they're to prevent crime, to provide emergency response and also to provide support services. Yet, when many see a police officer, they have remarkable feelings of indifference or even rebellion. Now, please understand me not to make any excuses for abuses of power, for sexism, for racism, or any discrimination of any kind. But these extremes aside, police officers represent a public service that's for our safety. And without speed limit signs, defensive driving, or consequences for speeding, the lives that we treasure both in this room and in our families and in this world would certainly be put at far greater risk on the roads and highways. Now, here's what's remarkable in this story is that God did have mercy on me. The police officer didn't give me a ticket. And that's good because I really didn't have 200 some odd dollars laying around to waste on an unnecessary ticket, right? But the mercy was not that I didn't get a ticket. The mercy wasn't just that I prayed in front of Abigail and said, Lord, have mercy on me. Don't give me a ticket even though I was doing wrong, which I didn't do. The Lord spoke to me in this situation. There was something the Lord was trying to get my attention about, and the Lord was telling me to slow down, that I wasn't being diligent. And the police officer that night on Passover was an instrument of God's justice for me. Today we're going to be studying in Romans 13 about submission to governing authorities. This passage is one of the most hotly contested and widely debated among Paul's letters. And like police officers, it evokes a lot of feelings, perspectives, and opinions. My encouragement to you is this. Paul is a spirit-led apostle who writes to Gentile believers in the church at Rome and Gentile believers like us about the basic doctrines of how to honor God and live out there in our salvation. This passage is sandwiched in between something Deborah taught on last week, an explanation of spiritual gifts and what comes after, which is a reminder of how to love our neighbor. So let us have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Read with me here in Romans chapter 13. We'll read verses um, 1 through 7. Well, before we do that, I want to I give a few background elements. I'm sorry. 
um, there's a few things that we, we studied last week in chapter 12 that have important bearing for what we read. The first is that Paul is addressing some what I'd call Christian extremism um, because of the radical demand of the gospel to avoid conformity to the world. Many took things too far by deeming everything evil. So things like marriage, sexual relations, and government are addressed by the apostles throughout the New Testament in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy and Titus and 1 Peter to point out that things like this have been appointed by God. It also gives meaning to, let's read together in chapter, chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So Paul's saying we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater, we can't just throw out everything and deem it evil, because there are things that God has established, things that culture has adopted, that we have to see God's purpose in. So we can't be conformed by the ways of this world, the way the world twists marriage and sex and government, but we have to see what God's purpose is in it. Then to close this chapter, let's read verses 17 through 21 of chapter 12. Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what we will read in, in verse 13 comes after Paul is saying, we need to clarify some things about what you deem worthy and holy. Let's read together chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Paul says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let me begin by saying this is not an essay on the merits and role of government. It is an overall guide and response to a very specific situation going on here in the church at Rome. So today we're not going to answer every extreme or outlying situation of world leadership or abuses of authority. 
Instead, we're going to try and draw out the spiritual truths of this passage that are relevant for us 2,000 years later, as we're not living under an emperor and first century Rome, but living under democracy today. That said, it's pretty straightforward what Paul's saying here. He says it so clearly and sums up everything he'll say in the first part of verse 1. He says, let every soul be subject to governing authorities. However, I think Paul knows he's got to explain himself more than that, right? He could just put a period on the end of that and be done. But Paul knows that, Adam, you're going to have questions. He knows that you're going to be thinking about a supervisor you've had or the things that we see on the news today and wondering, there's got to be exceptions to this rule. So Paul's going to help us a little bit more. Two words in this command that Paul gives need our attention. The first that we read in verse 1 is governing authorities. And the second thing he says is to be subject. This word we read in our scripture as governing authorities, it refers to any person who represents the power of the state. Not the state of Texas, but the state as in a nation or governing body. So a local authority all the way up to the emperor, the president, or the prime minister. And I think applied today, I think if Paul wrote these things to us today, we would, he would include roles such as police officers and city officials alike. But what's important is not the role, but how Paul directs our relationship towards them. The second word of significance is be subject. Other translations say submit. Now before we go haywire here about being subjects and submitting, it's important we not only see what Paul says but what he doesn't say. There are two Greek words in the New Testament that are very close proximity with one another. And the first one is hypotasso. And this word means submit, and it's the word that we read here. There's another word that Paul uses often, but not here, and that's hypokuo, which means to obey. Well, these words sometimes overlap in, in other passages, and they're used in conjunction with one another. The word, is obey, the word obey is not a simple or direct equivalent. It's not a synonym to submit. And it's precisely why Paul uses the word that he does. So we cannot apply a 21st century twist to Paul's intended meaning that would have been clearly understood to these readers here. Also, what's important about this word is it's the same word that Paul uses to describe marriage in Colossians and Ephesians. So we have a basis for this meaning. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. In the church's Bible on page 1354, Colossians chapter 3. We've been studying on marriage on Friday nights, and so this understanding may be fresh in our mind what Paul was saying to husbands and wives about their relationships with one another especially as it relates to the Lord. We'll read together in Colossians 3, verses 18 through 22. 
Paul says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Verse 22, Paul tells us that bond servants are to obey. This is the Greek word hypokuo that we just talked about. Bond servants are to obey. But in verse, verse 18, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. This is the Greek word hypokuo that means to submit. And whether all of that makes perfect sense, we should see there is a distinction between the two. In both situations, though, Paul says, as is fitting to the Lord. This Greek word, submit, it means under the arrangement. Properly understood, this word means under God's arrangement. So our understanding of submission can't be like what the world says it means. It has nothing to do with spouses or even governing authorities, but a spiritual arrangement that is to the Lord and involves others. Turn back with me to Romans 13 now, page 1306. Romans 13, page 1306. Now that we've considered submitting to governing authorities, let's see why. In verse 1, the second half, Paul gives us the reason. He says, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are by God. Like a parent to a child, God could just say, because I said so. But that's not what God says. He gives us a qualifier to say, there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, this is not a new point in Scripture. Paul is not revealing some revolutionary thought to this church at Rome or to us today, but he's reinforcing what we see consistently throughout the Old Testament, that God is ruler over all the universe. Joe, you prayed that this morning when you prayed. You said, Lord, you are Lord over all the universe, over all the earth. And we can say that, but if we don't believe that and apply it here, then it has no fruit, it has no bearing, it has no relevancy for our lives. And this includes, and especially, the governments of this world. I want to look at two places to see this clearly. First, turn with me to Daniel in the Old Testament. Chapter 4 on page 1024. Daniel chapter 4, page 1024. In the book of Daniel, 
God would use Daniel to humble the prideful and arrogant King Nebuchadnezzar until Nebuchadnezzar would realize that Yahweh alone was sovereign over all mankind. Hear what Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. We'll read in verse 17. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, The decision is by the decree of the watchers, and the sentence is by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets it over the lowly lowly list, excuse me, lowest of men. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, the most high God, Yahweh, rules over all mankind. And it's only because he's allowed Nebuchadnezzar to be in power that he is in power. Next, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, back just a few pages on page 829 in the church's Bible. Isaiah chapter 40, page 829. Isaiah is going to tell us that we shouldn't worry about other nations and whether or not they're going to pull one over on God. That maybe another nation can do whatever they want and God would somehow not notice because he's so busy. Let's read in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 40. Isaiah says this, He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. He will also blow on them and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Turn over just a few more pages to Isaiah chapter 45 on page 837. To this same people in Persia that Isaiah is prophesying to, he tells their king Cyrus, whom God calls his anointed. He tells Cyrus that he raised this King Cyrus up to fulfill God's own plan to send the Jewish people into captivity and then to send them back to rebuild the temple. So God says to this King Cyrus, I can do as I please, but I have anointed you and I'm using you, a king of an enemy nation, to fulfill my plan. We'll read in chapter 45. 45 verses 1 through 7. The Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of the secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord. There is no other God. There is no God beside me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know that from the rising of the sun to its setting, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and I create the darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. 
turn back now to Romans chapter 13, page 1306. Romans chapter 13, page 1306. So continuing on here in chapter 13, in verse 2, Paul tells us that when we rebel against governing authorities, we rebel against God himself. Paul uses a, a, a very intentional Hebrew expression. He says, bring judgment on themselves. This is used from the Old Testament, and it means that there is a natural consequence for rebellion, and that God uses secular authorities to carry out his own judgment. We studied in the prophet Hosea on Friday night that after many generations of sin, Israel's um, idol worship and rebellion, God would use the Assyrian army to come in and carry them off into captivity. Israel's rebellion was against the Lord's prophets who warned them and against God's holiness and his ways. But God used enemy leaders to bring about justice on his people. Then in verses 3 and 4, Paul unpacks this a little more to say, one of the purposes of government is to act as God's minister in rewarding good and punishing evil. This word minister here is diakonos in the Greek, and it's where we get the word deacon. Deacon is a word to either mean a public official or a spiritual term for one who ministers or serves. And Paul is using them connected here, combining them to say that whether they know it or not, political officials are ministers of God. Therefore, they have the right to punish wrongdoers. Paul puts it this way here in verse 4. He says, they don't bear the sword for nothing. So since authorities have a God-given responsibility to punish those who do evil, believers who want to be unafraid, he says, should do good. Now at this point, I think it's important to acknowledge a topic that we'll develop more later on. How can Paul claim that governments punish evil and reward good when he and we know of many contradictory governments in the world. Examples of real evil, like Nazi Germany, that did evil atrocities to undeserving people and rewarded evil. Now we're going to put a pen in this for now because we're going to talk about it more, but I, I, I want to let you know that this deserves a response. And I don't think Paul is unaware or ambivalent to these things. One thing I will say is that I believe Paul is describing government authority as it's supposed to function under God. Not necessarily how it always does. Like a marriage relationship, God has designed that we follow and keep it the way he's instructed. But there are prideful passive, controlling, and manipulative spouses that are not living together by God's design. Same with governing authorities. In verse 5, Paul is going to summarize for us what he said thus far. He says, therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, because of 
um, possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This word conscience, you know, it has lots of different meanings today. And then it did as well. This word conscience means together with what we know and see. Oftentimes we separate out what we know versus what we see, don't we? But Paul's saying combined with what we know deep in our spirit and we see outwardly. This word commonly meant one's moral compass, so to speak. So Gentile hearers might have initially heard this to mean, you know good from evil. But he goes a step further and uses a word that that really means to refer to our consciousness of who God is, of God's will. So because we have understood that God has appointed secular leaders, we ought to submit to them. In verse 6, it says, For because of this, this word this means because we accept that God has ordained authorities, we pay taxes. Paul's point here is even stronger because the word now that we read in our Bibles for minister is different than the ones we've read before. It's a word that is, it, it was used to describe people who worked in the temple for priestly service. So Paul could not find a way to communicate more strongly again and again and again his point to say that public leaders are in fact serving God's purpose. Verse 7, Paul wraps this up with a practical note. He says, give all their due. The context means that he especially means authority. Pay authorities taxes, they are due. Now, taxes are an uneasy statement for us, aren't they? It's especially uneasy right now. It's almost tax time. Statements are coming out, and Paul would say to us, pay the taxes that they're due. But in Paul's day, tax collectors weren't federal members of the IRS like we have today, that for all of the loopholes and issues and things and displeasure we have with how our country spends our tax dollars, there's an order and a structure. Back then, tax collectors were basically like the mob who would stop by with an instrument of justice, right, a bat or a weapon, to say, I need my taxes now, and they're what I say they are. Yet Paul says, pay what is due. Then he says that God expects more than us, of us than a begrudging recognition, but respect and honor. Okay, now that we've worked through this passage, let's change gears a bit. Paul is not describing, it's important we, we hear this, Paul is not describing an all-out Passover, uh, excuse me, a pushover or passive mentality. That would mean remaining in an abusive workplace, nor allow a dictator to commit genocide. Nor is Paul suggesting that all leaders are righteous. For we know if we read any page in the Old Testament that Israel was filled with leaders that did evil and did not honor the Lord's ways. 
But after he says there's no authority except from God, and he says not once, not twice, but three times, these leaders are ministers of God's justice. We cannot have an insubordinate posture and only support and submit to the leaders we want to, that we like, that meet our approval. We ought to understand that we're called to be people who respect authority and leaders by and large because God has put them in authority. But it's important for us to consider what this means for what I'll call exceptional circumstances. Because many who read this passage simply cannot compute what Paul's saying because they consider horrible bosses, corrupt government leaders, and extreme examples like Hitler and Nazi Germany. I want to mention a few situations that would have been relevant for Paul's timeline and that he would have been speaking directly in spite of. About 167 B.C., you'll remember a Jewish family called the Maccabees who were forced to obey God or man. The Seleucid Empire, um, Greek ruler Antiochus IV, he sought to eradicate Jews. He wanted to exterminate them. He wanted to not just run them away from their land, but completely destroy all of them. So he outlawed the Torah, outlawed reading scripture, forbid circumcision, which was God's covenant commitment, and he stopped the temple sacrifices. So after attempting to coerce Mattathias Maccabee, who was a priest, telling him and forcing him to sacrifice on God's altar to the pagan god Zeus, the Maccabees revolted. Eventually, the Maccabees would defeat the Seleucids. They would drive them from Jerusalem, but it was much and gruesome warfare. They were able to reclaim the temple, cleanse and rededicate it to the Lord. And 200 years later, Jesus would celebrate the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, because of the battle where good overcame evil. 200 years after this, you'll remember how Peter and John in the New Testament, they were before the Sanhedrin, before the Jewish authority. Leaders who told God's disciples, you're not allowed to preach about Jesus. Peter and John would respond to these Jewish leaders governing authority, those whom were put in charge of God's Jewish people, right? Peter and John would respond to them to say, whether it is right in the sight of God to you to obey God, you judge. For we cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and heard. Later in the next chapter, they, they say, we cannot obey God, excuse me, we ought to obey God rather than man. So Paul's Old Testament understanding and his Jewish heritage would have given him a robust understanding of all of these things equally. Understanding that God, on the one hand, appoints leaders for his purpose. 
And on the other hand, that there are extreme occasions that warrant a resistance to evil rulers. So what does this mean for us today? I want to explain the real challenge that exists with Paul's imperative to submit to governing authorities. Many readers and hearers want to make the point that Paul doesn't explicitly say and qualify his command with restrictions or exceptions. Where is the line that they would ask? When is it too far? When am I entitled to stand up for myself? It is that very question and posture that is the challenge. I believe that there are two unclean spirits which Jesus and Paul address again and again, things that we cannot remain in and inherit the kingdom of God. Two unclean spirits, two things that are working in mankind here. Pride and insubordination. A spirit of pride means having an excessively high opinion of oneself that leads to being unaccountable or without regard for responsibility. Like Adam in the Garden of Eden, when he chose sin and his will and refused to repent and accept responsibility. A spirit of insubordination or rebellion means defiance of authority, refusal to obey orders. Like Saul in the Old Testament, the first king of Israel, who grew impatient waiting on Samuel the priest. So he illegitimately offered the sacrifice, priestly sacrifice himself. Afterwards, the prophet Samuel says this to Saul. He says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. My point is the challenge with this passage and the calling to submit to governing authorities isn't because it's impossible. It's because we have spirits of pride and rebellion that say, I don't want to. But for those who want to honor God and are willing to be subject to governing authorities, there is a wonderful solution to exceptional circumstances. To submit doesn't always mean to obey. Paul is a wordsmith. That's why I love reading him. He's so careful and diligent and very choosy with the words that he means that, that he uses to say exactly what he means. It's also why we spent time to develop this passage to understand the difference between submission versus obedience. Properly understood, submission means under God's arrangement. So our understanding of submission truly has nothing to do with governing authorities or dire situations but a spiritual arrangement with God. That's because God is always at the top of any hierarchy. 
So he's the one we're submitting truly to. And it's his spirit we come to for spiritual direction. And that being said, being subject to governing authorities unto the Lord does not always mean obedience. Like the Maccabees, who were being forced to sacrifice to Zeus on the altar of God, or even Peter or John before a corrupt and pride-centered Jewish leader group, the Sanhedrin, we should spiritually consider obedience to man-made laws if they come against the higher spiritual laws of the Lord, when they are incompatible with our allegiance to God. That doesn't mean just because we say, oh, this government leader is arrogant, we can't obey them. For God used the arrogant Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament. But in order to recognize these places, we must be spiritually seeking the Lord, not taking matters of vengeance into our own hands, which Paul warns us about in chapter 12. We cannot test things spiritually if we're not spirit-led. If we're not submitted to the Lord's authority, we cannot honor earthly governing authorities the way God would lead us to. My friends, we live in a world where evil abounds, where corruption is returned with wickedness, where people are entitled, they dishonor their elders, they have an aversion to authority, and they cannot understand spiritual submission. Jesus calls to us today from Matthew 20 and says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let them be your servant. And Paul urges us in chapter 12 of Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable, the perfect will of God. Amen. We are standing on
Stay. 